Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, and welcome to The Crux. I'm Gary Sheffer here with Mike Fernandez. Great to see you. Great to be here with you. Yes, back in the BU studio again. And so we haven't talked a lot, Mike, on the crux about impeachment, <laughs> that uh, inquiry that's underway. Because everybody else is. Uh, yes. But so I, 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 we have talked about the White House and its communication strategy in a broader sense. And, and it's really, you know, uh, cycling through several communications directors. Uh, but we're we're in a position right now as we record this where uh, the White House seems to have adopted a policy on the Ukraine issue. Uh, no White House uh, of of fuzzing up the facts. Mm-hmm. And the facts are un- undisputed right. in, in this case that there was a phone call. In fact, the facts originally directly came from the president From himself. the White House. And, and so that's why... Uh, from what I've seen, the the supporters and uh, the surrogates for the for the White House. But, and by the way, we just came off a weekend where there were no White House officials on the Sunday morning talk shows. There were no congressional leaders on the Monday morning uh, Sunday morning talk shows. Mm-hmm. And so, largely, what you heard was fake hoax, mm-hmm. uh, conspiracy mm-hmm. uh, being uh, contrived by the Democrats to remove the president or apologists for the action. Marco mm-hmm. Rubio saying when he uh, the president asked uh, China to investigate the Bidens, it was a joke, which then later mm-hmm. was actually contradicted by the president saying, no, I was dead serious. Yeah. It's, a, uh, it's a little bit like two two little boys, you know, choosing up sides uh, for baseball uh, and going up that baseball bat, you know, hand over hand. Exa- pretty soon they're grabbing air. That's right. And, and so uh, I teach crisis and, mm-hmm. and you've mm-hmm. done it several times. Uh, I can't tell, honestly, if this is uh, brilliance, Mm -hmm. this strategy of completely fuzzing up Mm -hmm. the issue rather than taking it on head on, or it's incompetence, uh, gross incompetence. And uh, certainly... The one uh, thing it does do, it underscores uh, what our guests uh, will be talking about with us in, in a little bit, and that's the fact that... Uh, while there is a lot of debating and a lot of yelling and screaming and ranting and raving, there's very little listening going on That's in Washington. That's right. That's right. And I, I thought the, the sort of height of this over the weekend was on Meet the Press, the great vaunted, most you know, longest-run political show uh, in Public America. Public affairs, yeah. Public affairs show uh, where Chuck Todd and uh, Ron Johnson, who's a senator from Wisconsin, basically got in a screaming match. Now— it was because uh, Johnson, and remarkably at one point, uh, said he doesn't trust uh, the, the CIA or the FBI in any way um, and refused to answer questions. And, and Todd basically, and I thought rightly, uh, was yelling at him. And again, mm-hmm. to the point of our guest today, mm-hmm. the ranting and raving doesn't advance uh, the senator's point right. in any way. So that's where I say on the Republican side— where the facts are so clear, the normalization of what the president did with Ukraine and China, and then the crazy conspiracy, in my view, yeah, 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 conspiracy yeah. theories yeah. that you, you're hearing from the president's supporters certainly is the most unique crisis strategy that I've seen in a long, crisis communication strategy yeah. I've seen in a long time. Well, uh, I, mean, I mean, it's long been the case that a strategy has been deflection. Right. Uh, the, I guess Very the, quest, the, the question is, is deflection with things that it don't seem to have a proof point right. is, is a little bit more mm-hmm. of a challenge. Um, and it'll it will be interesting to see ultimately how this gets played out. Yes. Um, and, and you know if we go back and rewind the clock to Richard Nixon, I mean, a- at some point it's like the the facts were so big. Yes. That people in his own party felt compelled to leave him. Right. And that will be the question here. Yes. Uh, you know, is there such a point, or is politics 
bigger than the Constitution. It's yeah. politics bigger than the issue of the day. Even though impeachment is inherently a political process. Absolutely. But there are um, oath of office issues here and that kind well, of thing. Well, there are implications in terms of what kind of you know, what kind of political institutions are we going to have? Do we want to have, yeah. You know, is, is and fundamentally, you know, are we going to have rule of law? Um, I mean, one of, you know, one of the great speeches from um, the 1960s, uh, I think, was somebody who I worked for later in life uh, when he went to integrate the state university system in South Carolina, mm-hmm. Fritz Holling said, yeah. you know, we're going to have a, a government of laws, not of men. Not of men, exactly. And and so it's it, it will be interesting to play out, but I love watching the communications side of, side of this. Uh, Democrats seem to be positioning themselves as reluctant impeachers, and that's certainly yeah. what Nancy Pelosi um, has tried to do, and I think smartly. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I have a Republican background, so yeah. I'm not I'm yeah. not playing politics here. Smartly, that uh, her message has been, uh, no, this isn't going to be good for us politically, mm-hmm. meaning Democrats. Mm-hmm. But the president gave us no choice. Yeah. I, I think it's a smart way to present that to the American people, regardless of where it goes. And to your point, I was just I have to laugh sometimes. I can't help myself, Mike. You know, as a political yeah. junkie. When yesterday, um, when a uh, when the second whistleblower news that there's a second whistleblower on the Ukraine issue came out, and we were driving to Boston, my wife was reading me some of the comments, which is always a bad idea. <laughs> and the person said, "Oh, this is complete hoax," meaning Ukraine is a complete hoax. And now I'm beginning to feel like Watergate was a hoax. Uh-huh. And my we really didn't <laughs> land a man on the moon. <laughs> exactly. And it's the earth really is flat. Yeah, there were, and by the way, there's you can go down to the National Archives in Washington and listen to the tapes that uh, obviously there there was uh, there was an issue there, uh, to say the least. So one other thing I I, uh, I hearken back to my days at GE and I I you know, when I first got assigned to do labor negotiations mm-hmm. as a communicator, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, my goodness. Right. You know. Could anything? I got the short straw. Uh, exactly. What did I do wrong? To, you know. So, but I ended up. I really enjoyed it, yeah. and it was in, in a ways, Mike. It was very similar to political campaigns. You know, you're absolutely. At, at least we were. We were ensconced in a hotel in New York in mm-hmm. two or three weeks, and really ran it like a, a campaign. And now I see the UAW rejecting, at least as we're taping, the latest uh, contract offer from GM, and, and them saying that these. Uh, 35,000, I believe, uh, yeah. workers are out, something to that effect, uh, are out. Uh, and I, I look at this from a communication standpoint and think maybe there's more sympathy for unions these days at a time where uh, economic inequity has right. widened yeah. um, and where people have a very sort of fond um, uh, perspective or feelings toward people who make things with their hands, right? Right. This sort of maker movement among young people and all that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if the unions can make a comeback. When I started at GE, there were probably 100,000 people in our unions mm-hmm. in the United States, union-represented employees. When I left, it was like 20,000. Wow. So the, the unions lost. Let's yeah. say that those two decades, the unions clearly lost. Can unions make a comeback? Well, I, I think they can, and I think that the, clearly the the current environment, where even the CEOs realize that they need a cleaner bill of health, and so they come out yeah. with a redefinition of stakeholders, uh, of, yeah. of stakeholders, yeah. and, and 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 what corporations should be and are all yeah. about. Uh, so they they sense that there's yeah. that there's there's a problem, um, and then we have you know the new SEC filings where people are. Uh, more observant of the disparity between CEO pay pay to uh, rank and file pay. And and so I think and then I think people are worried about the economy with stock market, you know, still sort of Mm -hmm. uh, moves along up and down, but more up than down over the last several years. And so as a consequence, the well healed are, you know, you know, don't feel the same pain that right. those who maybe work with their hands do. And, and and so maybe so, although I do think 
that a lot of the debate around contracts are still centered around the same issues that they were yeah, 20, exactly. 30 years ago. Yeah. Because what's happened is obviously technology right. has been a big part of it. Uh, but also a big part of it has been the fact that we have more of a global economy and you can make things anywhere, any place, any time. That's right, exactly. And, uh, and, and so that puts pressure on these companies yeah. that, are, that need or have a sense that they they have to deliver for shareholders. Right. So uh, so so it's it's interesting. Clearly, they're um, uh, you know as you pair back and forth between uh, you know whether uh, we're dealing with the costs of the future as we look at new tech versus certain cost realities and how that gets played out. You know. I'll say what they say in the news business. Only time will tell. Yeah, exactly. Well, you look, you look at things like productivity. I think since 1980s, productivity is up 75%. Yeah. And, and and wages yeah. uh, in the middle class is up like 11%. You know, it, and it's it's not a good formula for a middle class, right? No. And, and it also uh, underpins some of the other challenges we have in society. Uh, because people who are caught in the middle begin to blame others. Right. And so one of the blames goes to immigrants. Right. Um, and, good and, point. And, and, and that's why I think that there's such a fever uh, among some to, to have that wall built. Yeah. And, and one thing, I, a personal note, one of the things I always felt, and this is no not an insult to my friends in the labor movement, but I always felt like when I was at GE and we were in negotiations, you went through this too. Yeah. We went through strikes, both you and I. Mm -hmm. If I couldn't out communicate the union, mm -hmm. I should just pack it up and go home. Right. It, it, in other words, I had more tools and resources than they did. They certainly had a more emotional narrative yeah, but than that, I did. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that they had more tools than we had. I mean, in the sense that uh, they oftentimes would hire you know, hotshot firms from yeah, D.C. Yeah. or New York yep. to, to help, you know, the national would send it yeah, in good to point. the local. Yeah. Um, but all of that said, I think the uh, I think maybe there was greater sophistication at some point uh, in the sense that uh, because in an earlier day, uh, companies decided they weren't going to communicate at all. Right. You know, when there was a strike. The blackout. We, the blackout. Yes. You know, we negotiate at the table, yeah. not in the news media. Meanwhile, you know, they were getting beat over the head by news releases and editorial yeah. boards that the unions were setting up. Right. So, so I think that what's happened is that period where they were very good and very aggressive got met uh, by people like yourself, uh, yeah. who who said, you know what, we can do this too, right? And uh, and and so I think it's been more of a draw, and that the draw has been won by the companies in large measure because of technology. Technology, yeah, more I than agree. Anything else, I, you know, to that point it reminds me of the blackout stuff. I once during a uh, discussion with the labor relations folks in the company, I was advocating no more yeah. blackout, no more news blackout during negotiations. Yeah. And I always remember one of the labor relations people said to me, Gary, you're abandoning a strategy that we've used for 40 years. And I said, look, it's not 40 years ago, uh, right? right? You know, right. they're going to be out talking about what we're saying at the bargaining table. So should we. Yeah. Right. And and and. You know, they saw the 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 value in that, and that's yeah. What when we your did. ace pitcher has put three people on base, it's time to get them out of there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, a couple short notes, uh, news things. One that I I I recommend, and Mike, you you have some personal knowledge of this. I saw in sixty minutes a great piece on the Lando Lakes, uh, the food company. Uh, I always associate with butter. Yeah, you know, no, I, I still buy butter. that butter. Yeah, that butter is great. Uh, Beth Forge is the CEO yeah. of Lando Lakes. And she did. She was featured. Les, um, uh, Leslie Stahl. Yeah, Leslie did, Stahl did, yeah. A, did a piece on sixty minutes on sixty minutes about her being the being the first openly gay female CEO of a Fortune five hundred company. I don't have anything more to say about it than bravo to Landa Lakes. And t uh, you want to see a really good personal story about someone who um, just goes about their job without wearing things on their sleeve, um, but it's a central part of our identity. I was just so impressed with her and the, and the piece that Leslie did with yeah. her. Well, you know, we talk in uh, 
in, in communications quarters about authenticity. Mm. And we talk about having a, a, a personal brand. Um, Beth is a special person, yeah. and, and she's a special person in the sense that she deeply cares about mm. what she's doing as an executive of this company. Um, Landa Lakes uh, gets lots of kudos from me and from others for what it's done in mm -hmm. terms of of uh, sustainability mm. in farming communities, and you see some of that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, in this spot, uh, and and she's very personable. You yeah. know, she's out there with. Uh, Land Lake families, yes. you know, because this is a coalition of yes. farmers and farming businesses, and you see what she's done to, uh, and, and Land Lakes has done to underscore the increasing number of women right. that are running these yeah. large family farms. Yeah. And, uh, it, it w it's an impressive program. She's an impressive, Very much. you know, executive, yeah. and, and people should take a look. Yeah, and I, you know, people should take a look. That's all the recommendation. And I think about, Mike, mm -hmm. um, 10 or 20 years ago, even oh. in the company that I worked for. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure uh, that Beth would have had this, the chance she has yeah. today. Well, I yeah. remember the first company that I worked for after Capitol Hill was Eastman Kodak Company. Yeah. And we were one of the early companies uh, to offer domestic partnership yeah. benefits. And when we did that, I mean, there was there was some nastiness. Some very yeah, we, you know, same thing we had at GE. And, yeah. and, and and so to see that we've evolved and yeah, this is you know completely you know and uh, you know thank God you know people can grow. Right? That's right. And that society can grow. Yeah. Um, because she is a um, a super a superior executive. Yeah, leader. exactly. And I think in this area, Mike, particularly on LGBTQ and and same sex marriage. I largely think the change that happened in America relatively quickly uh -huh. Uh -huh. is largely due to corporations, big business. I, I agree with you. you know, I agree with I, you. I think a lot they, of them came out in support yeah. of uh, you know gay marriage yeah. amendments that were, were up in various states, or there were some amendments to squash gay marriage, yes. and then executives and came stood out. Up. Yeah. You know, in, in fact, Cargill, yeah. uh, you know, Greg Page was, was out oh, yeah. there yeah. in... Uh, uh, as as were a lot of other executives when I was living in uh, the Twin Cities. Uh, but no, she's a terrific leader. Uh, Land Lakes is a terrific company. Kudos to them. Uh, great story. Great story minutes. by uh, 60 Minutes. Last item. It's amazing how global events affect you know, almost everything a global corporation does or those mm -hmm. seeking to be global. And so I read two two pieces today um, about two really great brands, the NBA and Apple, of course, um, getting caught up in what's going on in Hong Kong with the democracy protests that have been incredibly durable. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I thought maybe they wouldn't last this long. But um, the Houston Rockets are one of the best teams in the NBA. They um, have the largest connection or the deepest connection to China with Yao Ming, and, and, mm -hmm. and they've made a big point of trying to make connections in China, which loves basketball. Yeah, absolutely. Which loves basketball. But the general manager tweeted support for the protesters in Hong Kong, the democracy protesters, and the political damage and the sort of brand damage for the Rockets and the NBA in China was really surprising to me anyway, but it happened quickly. Chinese sponsors pulled their money from the franchise, Chinese broadcast partners so they wouldn't air Rockets games, mm. and the Chinese Basketball Association su suspended its ties with uh, the one of the NBA's best team, People's Daily, the, you know, the daily newspaper now, do you have scathing. A now, do you have a sense that uh, the Houston Rockets did this purposely or unknowingly? No. Th so this is a general manager sort of personally say saying this. I should be clear. He pulled down the tweet mm -hmm. immediately uh -huh. and apologized. But it's too late. But it's too late, right. And so it just goes to show that uh, you can step in it pretty quickly. Um, uh, and, and, and the second example, Mike, and I'd love to get, uh, my sense is that a lot of multinational corporations are, there's so much danger. Oh, and, sure. and, and And I don't know if they focus on it enough. I agree with you. You know, and the other one was Apple 
um, uh, there's a, I was reading Boing Boing, which I'm sure you do mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. as well every day. And uh, there's an app that uh, was submitted to the the App Store twice, and Apple rejected it, which would show uh, where the protesters and where the police are Ooh. in Hong Kong. Uh-huh. And the person who developed it said, look, I'm just trying to you know, keep people out of danger so they know where the hotspots are. Mm-hmm. And Apple's rejected it twice from the App Store saying it was a way for people to avoid law enforcement. Now, apparently they've changed their mind, uh, although it's not up on the App Store yet, but they're going to put it up. Huh. And, and so, again, you know, this seemingly, you know, distant yeah. uh, uh, events that are going on sort of just, you know, the gears get you know, churning and, and yeah. And well, I think that's a challenge for, as you said, in any any large uh, multinational company, uh, any global company, because uh, values, culture. Yeah. As much as we'd like to think that our values are our best, are universal. And are yeah. universal. Yes. You know, um, we sometimes can run into problems, and there's kind of two sides of the coin, right? Yeah. On one hand, there's the need to have standards that you're going to have the same throughout the globe, because if you don't, it could hurt you, particularly around environmental choices you make that could hurt workers or hurt communities surrounding a a, a physical plant, right? Um, And then on the other side, when you take stands uh, as a company, that seemingly are the right moral stand, right. you can find yourself in odd places. I saw this actually at Cargill at one point where uh, they had actively you know, taken a stand embracing the LGBT community yeah. uh, and, and kind of saying, you know, we're, you know we're, we'll support gay marriage and so on. Well, there was a gay parade in Minneapolis and uh, uh, the CEO at that time, Dave McLennan of Cargill, still the CEO there, mm-hmm. um, he and his family uh, wanted to support uh, the Cargill Pride organization that was marching in the parade. Right, so sure. they marched with them. Yeah. Uh, well, people in this day and age take out their phones uh, yeah. and take images. Those images ended Citizen up journalists, on, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the company's yeah. you know, social media, which also is available in places like Russia, yes. where you know, gay rights is is not yeah. an issue. It's banned. Right. And in fact, we had some uh, quibbling with, you know, an employee. We had the same problem. That yeah. ultimately the employee was let go, but very gingerly let go. Uh, and, and, and the focus was on the language yes. that this employee used rather than the fact that he was upset that the company had taken and the CEO had taken this position. Right. We had same issue, Mike. Uh, amicus brief, mm-hmm. support, um, and, you know, which is fine, which was yeah. the right thing to do. But then you have to say, okay, let's look at this more broadly. Yeah. You know, we do business in a lot of places where not only th- this is illegal, actually. Yeah, right, right, right. right, right you know, right. And, and so we've got to think about yeah. Everyone, but sometimes you yeah. might want to take a calculated risk, right? To- completely. You know, so, so, right so, thing so, to do. So, so, so it could be the right thing to do on top of it. Long-term business interests yeah. for the company are, are there. Um, and you don't care. Right. You know, That's right. What the, the Russian government yes. thinks. Or you yeah. don't care, you know, whatever some other That's government right. and, thinks. You know, I said this. It's in the Arthur Page report on thought leadership, you know. Sometimes you have to advocate for things that aren't the best thing for the company financially. Right. Right. And that's the. We've talked about CVS Health. Right. CVS Health. You know, here's one last story on this topic, which and I'm going to forget the name of the paper, the tragic shooting of the journalists in Paris a few years ago. And I forget the name of the the alternative paper that was the focus of that attack um, uh, having to do with uh, uh, illustrations of Muhammad. Right. Um, And so. Unbeknownst to me, our, our people in Paris decided that they were going to underwrite the next issue of the publication. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a sign of support, not of course only for— you're looking at it. Are, are you creating a target r- correct, for yourself? Correct. Correct. And the next issue 
they made the decision before they even knew what was going to be on the cover was another what some people thought offensive image of Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly inside the company, we had this dispute mm-hmm. uh, among some of our employees who mm-hmm. um, were Muslim, you know, yeah. and and and, uh, and with what was really a totally uh, good-hearted yeah. uh, attempt to support people who had suffered a terrible tragedy. Yeah. And, and it's, it, you know, it, there's just so many twigs and sticks to trip over in these global corporations these well, days. Well, and, 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 you know, I've told clients over and over again that this is the reason why you need to do issues management. Completely. And you have to look Risk at management. it, yes. you know, from, from multiple angles, yes. multiple audiences and stakeholders. Otherwise, you're going to trip. You're going to trip. Terrific, Mike. Great, great discussion. And we have a really interesting discussion. with. Oh, it should be fun. Yes. Welcome to The Crux. Increasingly, we appear to live in a divided country. People do not simply disagree. They assume those on the other side are either stupid or evil or both. (laughs) Uh, There is little discussion, no intelligent discourse. Friendships are broken, family members ostracized. Fake news and tribalism are the order of the day. Conservatives get their political information from Fox News, liberals from MSNBC. I had a European friend, Gary, in fact, this past week, uh, called me up and, and, and was commenting on kind of the state of the affairs here in the U.S. and said, you guys now live in the disunited States of America. <laughs> Completely um, right. But anyway, our guest today on the crux of the story is Jackie Gingrich Cushman, an author and syndicated columnist who has given this a lot of thought and is out with a new book, Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening. Welcome to the Crux, Jackie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, you and Gary having me on today. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Um, before we discuss your book, though, uh, which is why we have you, and, and, and you should know that Gary and I love the book's underlying mm-hmm. message. Uh, part of that is that Gary worked for a Republican governor. I worked for a Democratic U- U.S. senator. Uh, we also are two big New York Yankee yes. fans sitting in the shadows <laughs> of, of Fenway <laughs> Park, uh, where the Boston Red Sox tend to... Uh, do damage to our favorite team occasionally. Uh, Anyway, uh, nevertheless, I want to ask you about some developing news. Uh, You're a resident of the state of Georgia, the senior U.S. senator from Georgia, Johnny Isaacson, uh, who has served uh, in the Senate since uh, 2005 and who previously succeeded your dad, uh, Newt Gingrich, in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, announced uh, late August that he would be stepping down at the the end of the year due to health reasons. Uh, And now uh, Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, uh, has to appoint someone to uh, to serve in uh, Senator Isaacs instead over the course of 2020, and then there will also be a special election uh, to fill out the remaining two years of Isaacson's term, which doesn't end until 2022. Uh, one name circulating as a replacement <laughs> is your own. So the question is, are you ready to enter the world of ranting and raving as a member of the U.S. Senate? And if so, what might you do to moderate the ranting and raving in our nation's capital? That's that's a great question. It's interesting because, obviously, when I started the book, um, you know, over a year ago, Our Broken America, our both sides need to stop ranting and start listening. I had no idea, uh, nor did anyone else, that Senator Isaacson would be putting in his his, um, resignation at the end of this year. And quite frankly, I spent, um, you, you read the book, I did a lot of research about what's happening, um, put a lot of thought into the book. And in, and in fact, the first the introduction to the book is kind of, um, you know, my background, you know, I grew up in politics, obviously, with my father, Newt Gingrich, uh, worked in corporate, you know, America, I ran a uh, corporate planning mm-hmm. um, um, area for $3 billion, so I worked in corporate development, and then I really got involved in the community and I served on four boards. So quite frankly, to me, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because it isn't the easiest path. And in fact, um, I kind of have to laugh at myself because one of the 
one of the things I say in, in, in the book, Star Broken America, is, you know, why would anyone run for office today? Why would anyone want to be in office today? Because it's so polarizing. I'm like, I agree. that shows that God has it. Right. So that shows that God has a sense of humor, right? So, um, so I wrote that, and then Johnny Isaacson, um, you know, announced his plans. And interestingly enough, Governor Kemp has decided instead of just appointing someone straight, which he, he will appoint somebody, but he has, um, instead of backroom discussions, he um, has said for those that are interested in serving to actually put in their resume to kind of stand up and put huh. their hand up, um, which is really, if I think, quite fascinating to think about. Uh-huh. So, um, after much thought, um, a lot of prayers, talking with obviously my husband, Jimmy, and our two children, um, I decided to submit my resume online, and I did that last week. Huh. Huh. Um, that, so, is that like over Indeed or, or one of these applications? <laughs> I know. It's, it's interesting because it's literally, um, and I can send you the link, but it's literally you just go on and you upload your PDF, right, your PDF file of your resume. Oh, my goodness. And all of this is public, so you can go and search to see who's um, actually submitted their resume. And then you... Interesting. Um, you, then you, you, yeah, so then you mark that you are a U.S. citizen, obviously, and that you live in Georgia because of the requirements, right, yeah. like the constitutional requirements yeah. of the senator. So yeah. you, can't, you can't be from Ohio, right? Yeah. So, so we know that you're at least 30 years of age. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, that's exactly right. Um, so, I, so I think it is interesting, and, and part of the reason that I really felt called to do this because it, you know I know it's going to be you know I know it's going to be hard, and there's going to be a lot of criticism, and I think there unfortunately are too um, few examples. Uh, people that don't get caught up in the ranting and the raving, yeah. and um, clearly that would be that would be my goal. Now the question is, can you know, can it be done? I mean, yeah. I, I can't tell you. I can't look into the future. But that part is it, one of the reasons that I decided to put my name um, and submit my resume for the U.S. State Senate, U.S. U.S. Federal Senate. So yeah. we'll see. I mean, Governor Kim yeah. gets to the side, and there's a lot at stake. So not only does this person have to run in a special election, um, you know, in November 2020. But the way Georgia works, there's no primary for this seat. And mm-hmm. that November 2020 election, well, so... Oh, it's a, is an open election. Is an open. Interesting. So let, yeah, so let's, it's fascinating. So Senator Perdue will be running for re-election, mm-hmm. and he's the junior senator now. He'll obviously be the senior senator at that point. Um, all the, you know, obviously all the Georgia, you know, the House is up, which, which controls redistricting as well as, obviously, President Trump will be on the ballot. Mm-hmm. So it's just a fascinating, it's a, jungle, it's a jungle election in that in Georgia, you have to have 50% at that time in this open election. Mm-hmm. And if not, it goes into a, um, a runoff in January. Mm-hmm. So uh. if they're, you know, yeah. So, so it's a really kind of interesting. And then, then, once you win that election, you then have to turn around and run again for the regular in right, time clock yeah. of the yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Twenty twenty two. When when Governor Kemp is on the ballot with this person. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, in fact, the senator that I work for, he originally got elected in a special election mm-hmm. and had to do that right. same turnaround. Um, now, it was a little right. bit different in that environment. What had happened there is the governor actually stepped down as governor and the lieutenant governor became governor and then appointed the governor. <laughs> which is what, what which oh, is what no. Hollings used oh, against no. him. Um, I have very trouble, successfully. I have trouble following that, Mike, but I'm sure it was all on the up and up. Wow. Well, How about that? So he, resi- he resigned to get appointed. Right. 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 <laughs> so he resigned governor to get appointed U.S. senator. Right. Well, right. Well, anyway, okay. yeah, that, that, that is interesting. Well, anyway, we 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 look forward to the news, and and hopefully, you know, it's not like a a slate of fifteen hundred candidates. Right. Exactly. I was going to say. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, a- <laughs> um, your book calls for Americans to begin listening, talking, and working with one another again, uh, no matter how hard or frustrating that may be. What do you hope? your readers take away from hearing that message? I really, um, I really hope that they understand that to make progress um, in our country, because we have so many different backgrounds and different people, we really have to be able to be, and I call it, I, I'm Episcopalian, so 
I call it being in community with one another. So even if we don't, you know, agree on everything. I'm an Episcopalian to too, to... talking about being yeah. in community with one another. <laughs> I shared with Gary right. a line that uh, wherever you find four Episcopalians, you can find a fifth. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but the whole idea is to kind of come together in community and to figure things out and that you can't, you know, I think so many times we try to solve things on our own and it doesn't really work. And so we have to do it working with other people. And I've been very successful. Um, you know, I've worked for two decades in Atlanta in a, a variety of nonprofits. Um, and, and I never, you know, I never start with what party are you with? I start with what problem are you trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you, if you focus on that, then you'll find yourself aligned with whoever cares about that particular problem at that particular time. And then you work, right? You, you work on trying to find a solution. Mm-hmm. And then once you make progress, then you share that solution with other people. And along the way, um, I, I think both sides, so it's not just me. I mean, I, I, you know, I learned that, you know, that there are Democrats that have the same right concerns that I do and we work on certain mm-hmm. problems. And sure. they also find out that, oh, oh, my gosh, look, Republicans actually care about the environment. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Um, so I think it really has to do it together and you have to do it not just talking about things. Because I think sometimes we talk, we talk about talk, but we don't get things done. I think when you find a problem and you work for a solution. Right. Terrific. Well, thanks, Jackie, for 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 joining us. Uh, really I- interesting book that I that I enjoyed. And, you know, uh, Mike and I are here in, in uh, Boston at Boston University and, and we teach college students in their late teens, early 20s. Um, and we've discussed on this podcast previously um not you know these kids aren't just their students aren't, aren't just digital natives i mean they live their lives on their devices and in your book you're somewhat critical of um what you would call a curated life um that people establish online and in social media and you you even point to the always connected culture as being one of the culprits of this divide and the ranting and raving that you write about so Tell us about your concerns in, in, in that area, why you think it's dividing us rather than the early promise, of course, of the Internet was that it was going to bring us all closer. Right. So I think it actually does both. And then I think we, we need to be aware of that and then to use it to our advantage. So it does bring us closer in that, you know, if um, you know, my daughter, I now have a daughter at college. She's a sophomore and she can either, you know, call me on her cell phone while walking, you know, across campus, which obviously I could not do when I was in college. <laughs> you know, I had to go stand at the, right, I had to go stand at the end of the hall on the yes. hall phone, right? There was a wired phone with a very long cord, and if they tried to call in, they would have to go through a switchboard and have to be connected to that dorm. <laughs> I remember that those days. Right? Exactly. Yeah? So, so that's a totally different experience. So I talked to my, to my, um, you know, my parents, you know, maybe once a week when I was in college, so, you know, some but not all the time. Um, I, I talk to my daughter probably three or four times a week, and she, we text almost every day. So there is a much greater connection from that perspective, which I think is good. But on the other hand, I have, um, you know, you know, the, the, the lives we put on Instagram and Facebook are not always our full lives, right? right. So we don't put mm-hmm. the fact that, gosh, I woke up this morning, or most of us don't, gosh, I woke up this morning and I hurt so bad I could barely get in bed. Right. Or, you know, I feel like I look, I look really terrible right now. Or, you know, what, you know, you don't post, what you post is, you know, I'm at the, I'm at the fundraiser for the Trust for Public Land. In fact, I just posted this and it was a great <laughs> event, right? <laughs> that's, not, that's what I posted. Um, <laughs> and I think for, for, I know, so for adults, I think we, we know that that's not the full line, right? Like we, we're aware that, oh, you know, Jackie's posting the pictures of herself at an event, but not when she was still in her sweatpants. <laughs> but especially for teenagers um, and for college students, I think it becomes very hard because they begin to think that that's the life that other people are living. In fact, I have a friend whose child um, ended up, she went she went back to school her sophomore year, but the social pressure was so intense. And quite frankly, I think a lot of time was spent watching others have fun on social media yeah. around her. And when I was in college, I wouldn't have even known that was happening because there was no social media. But for this child, the psychological pressure was, was so, so hard for her yeah. that yeah. she came home. Yeah, it's kind of the like economy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think... Exactly. And I think that's right. I, I, I love your point about uh, differentiating between life and social life. Yeah. And, yeah. and I do think younger people right. um, have difficulty separating the two. That's 
that's why these influencers are so popular about mm-hmm. how I'm decorating my dorm room, you know, yeah. and millions right. of, of followers. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and for many people, that's not real life. Right, right. right. Well, First right. generation college students, you know, they don't have that opportunity. Well, it's also interesting. On the other hand, this is a generation that says it, it, it wants authenticity. Yeah. It, and so many of these influencers <laughs> are paid. Are paid, exactly. So, it's, great exactly. point. So they're, 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 doing, they're doing their dorm room and whoever paid them the most money. <laughs> That's right. Not necessarily in whatever, right, in, what, in whatever they would have liked. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I went to, um, to college, um, you know, if someone had decorated their dorm room, the only people that would know that that would be the few people on the hall, not the entire world. Yeah, but that's right. So it's just it's it's just a different it's a whole it's an entirely different time. I had a Foot Locker, and my I think my father literally pushed me out of the car and said goodbye. <laughs> you know, that was it. <laughs> See you later. That explains a lot. <laughs> it, it does. Yeah, we're going to deal with those issues later on, Mike. And, one of my exactly. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So I want to get back. To, I want to get back to an earlier topic that Mike talked about is the bubbles that we all live in, you know, to some degree around uh, how we consume media. And as a former journalist, I'm particularly concerned that this ranting and raving has overtaken journalism, particularly cable television news journalism. And, uh, you know, if someone doesn't like the facts they decry it as fake news, and I, and I don't mean to be political here one side or the other. It happens both ways. But the attacks on the news media, the discrediting news media, the treason, uh, et cetera, um, enemy of the American people, uh, I, I, that has been aided and abetted by the tribalism that you talk about and write about and Mike alluded to. Um, so how do we break, Jackie, out of this cycle where people are continually reinforced in their ideology and not enlightened by what uh, they see in the media. I, I think that, I think a couple of things have to happen. I think first people need to realize, um, and this is a specific that I throw out a lot, that um, you know, 64% of Democrats and 55% of Republicans have few or no friends in the opposite party. So, <laughs> wow. And that's, wow. That's, that's just, yeah, that's just that's literally, that's literally a fact. Right, so 64% of Democrats, 55% of Republicans, fear no friends, which means that not only do, that, do they not have a chance to uh, meet and interact with people of the opposite party, but they also um, probably believe all of the, um, the, the misnomers or, quite frankly, stereotypes that are propagated by both sides in the media. Um, and, and I think that's part of the problem. So. The only way, I don't think you can solve this national narrative, that's what I call it, this national narrative right. problem nationally. I think you have to solve it, again, in the community in which you live. So my advice to people, and obviously y'all, obviously you two have friends in the opposite party. <laughs> you're, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right? Completely, yes. So, right? Yeah, so you're, you're in the minority. Um, but my suggestion to everybody is go, you know, go have lunch or dinner with someone in the opposite party. Go... You know, go to a fundraiser with them, go to a, a service project with them, go to a, a football or a soccer game with them, and you begin to know that they're not they're, they're not the same person that you've been hearing about in the media. Right, exactly. <laughs> nice people, right? I mean, you, well, you, unfortunately, you can't do this globally. You have to do it individual by individual. Yeah. And Jackie, how do you—I certainly believe at the grassroots level it's necessary, but there used to be a certain amount of that um, open-mindedness or more of it at the federal, you, you think back to the classic example of Tip O'Neill yeah. and Ronald Reagan, right. right? Where they would agree to disagree, mm-hmm. but personally and professionally, they respected one another and and didn't fall into the trap of the ranting and raving. And, and of course, that's pre-social media, and it's much easier to do today. But it also needs to happen, right, uh, among leadership, uh, Congress, executive branch, et cetera. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And even when my father, I mean, even during the toughest times when he was speaker, um, as y'all probably remember, um, during the negotiations with Bill Clinton, there were several times that the government was shut down. Right. Um, and so obviously there was, it was right. So it was obviously a high tension environment and they were negotiating what they could, you know, both agree on. But in the end, they did sit down and they did figure out what they could write, what they could agree on. Mm-hmm. And they finally got it passed. And, um, you know, that's the last time we've had a, that's the only time we've had a balanced budget in my lifetime was when Clinton and Gingrich um, made right. that, yeah. you know, made, made, That's it, a good that reminder. Com- right, made that compromise, yeah, made that compromise together. So, I mean, it can be done, but I think, I think we need to have national leaders that are willing to say, you know, I, you know, I, I, I like and respect, you know, Democrats, you know, over there, 
but I, I don't agree with him from a policy standpoint. But here's what I'm willing to work on. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think you just have to, we don't we unfortunately don't have those types of uh, examples today. And when we do have bipartisan legislation, legislation, and we had some in 2018, we had four different packages that were put together and signed and ended up signing into law by the president. Unfortunately, it gets very scant news coverage. So even when there is something that's done that's bipartisan, there's not much focus on that. So is that because of the nature of the get, legislation or is it I mean, because it's also, you know, there are, are big mega issues mm. that we seem to be at a caterwaul almost consistently. And, and it's and it, I think the example you use is great because during that same era or, or maybe even just a little bit before we had our last sort of immigration reform bill that passed both houses under Ronald Reagan. Right. And it was sponsored by a Republican and a Democrat. Right. right. A Republican right. in the Senate and Alan Simpson. And and then you had Mazzoli, a Democrat in, in the House. Um, well, right. Ed- education bill by W and Ted Kennedy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Right. And if you look, but if you look at what was passed in 2018, we had four four really great bills. One was the Patri- uh, Patients and Communities Act, which is really the opioid epidemic, right? Addressing that. Yep. We had the VA mission. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at the, the VA, we're from the VA yep. Agricultural yep. Improvement Act, and then the First Step Act, which was criminal justice reform. Now, I, I would argue that, and I, and I could be wrong, that uh-huh. if the First Step Act was passed under President Obama, there would be never-ending coverage about how great that was. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't covered. Well, part of it is, I think, also the the, the, the yelling and screaming. The ranting and raving. Raving, getting in the way. Gets in the way of that, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to have. A, I mean, both of you have been around politics for a very long time and understand. Don't date us. Um, the importance of. Well, trust me, so have I. Not throwing stones. Um, and both of you understand the importance of, you know, clear communication and messaging and repetition, et cetera, because. You know, you can't tell somebody, you know, something one time, right? Oh, I just told them once, we're done. Um, and I think it, it does become challenging when you have, um, you know, a president that tweets, you know, constantly and consistently because his, you know, his, his tweets kind of drown that whatever other things are happening, and that becomes really the news and the focus of the day versus whatever else is trying to be communicated. Well, and then the other thing that happens is everybody else jostles. You know, who's who's going to take them on today? Mm-hmm. You know, and then right. And then it just becomes a louder and bigger barrage. Um, But, you know, I get your point about there are things that we can do individually and in our communities. I'd love to hear your thoughts, though, what we might be able to do more on a national scale. I mean, one of the things that struck me when somebody asked me, and maybe it's because my my mind tries to work historically, um, is, is that when somebody first talked to me about fake news and had me do a presentation um, for some students at, at, at Syracuse, I made the comment that actually fake news has been around a long time. It sure has. You know, we just haven't labeled it maybe quite the mm-hmm. same way. Uh, there hasn't been quite as much noise around it. We clearly didn't have the Internet back in the days of the Salem witch trials. Uh, but, you know, right. there, there have been times in our history uh, that have had their nasty political moments. Our founding fathers participated in fake news uh, in a very direct and personal way. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You know, and, and, and then we think about McCarthyism in the 50s, it, it, exactly. you know, and so on. Uh, but you lay out a clear case in your book that, you know, the current state of political discourse is dire. Just kind of wondering out loud, I mean, there used to be some great programs, at least great from my perspective, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in in the 1970s, I mean, you had firing line with William F. Buckley. Buckley yeah. So here you had a conservative, and oftentimes his guest was somebody who totally disagreed with mm-hmm. him. And right. you, you'd get a sense that, you know, what were the real uh, issues of the day? There was also a program that was uh, sponsored out of WGBH here in Boston. Oh, right, right. The Advocates. Advocates, yeah. You know, and I think mm-hmm. it was Roger Fisher who mm-hmm. set up the, um, I forget what they call the, I guess it's the negotiation project uh, out of uh, out of Harvard, but they had this show where they had lawyers and and had experts on mm-hmm. all sides of an issue and they debate it. And there was something later on called Miller's Court, and these things prompted us to at least listen to people on the other side. And, and I wonder if there is 
any kind of way we get back to it or or do do we have the attention span of a gnat and there's no helping us well i mean i think you raised a, a couple of great questions for I me mean, ideas first of all in what you're doing the two of you're doing with this podcasting is exactly what we need right so you know you know two, two friends from different sides talking about issues that matter and i think if you see that there's so much interest in the longer podcast now that people really are hungry for that kind of dialogue and information and depth of, um, you know, of, of, of facts and information is really great. I do think that it would be great to have a, 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 a network pick up something like that. So I think mm-hmm. you're exactly right. There's a huge desire to have civil discourse. In Georgia, I'm a frequent guest on um, the, we have a GTV, our, you know, our Georgia public broadcast has mm-hmm. a TV and radio show called Political Rewind. And mm-hmm. it's um, the host is Bill Nygut, who I've known for a very long time because he covered Georgia politics in the 80s, uh, and I knew him then. But he does the same thing. He, he, he has, you know, thoughtful guests on from, you know, Republican and Democrat, as well as journalists, and they sit down and talk about current issues, um, primarily Georgia, but some national. But they do it in a way that's very respectful. I mean, no, no one's screaming at the other person. No one's getting up and walking out. No one, You know, so it's done in a very... You know, a, a very nice fashion, and um, quite frankly, he's one of the he's one of the he has a lot of followers, a lot of people that watch it, and we get a lot of great response because there's just so few places you can get that. But I, I think you're exactly right. Hopefully, if we're lucky, someone is listening to this podcast and will and, and has right and ha, has a, we're has hoping, a Jackie. Like, we'll be like, that's exactly what we should be doing. Yeah, we're so hoping let's, it's let's not just our right family. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, Jackie, that's a that's a great point, and and you know the public's patience for getting to the facts is through that kind of conversation, witnessing it, participating in it, seems to be diminishing, um, and that's a sort of a result of the digital era that we live in. But you know, I I I think uh, about this often in talking to my students here, which is. We have a system, a political, an economic, a social system, if you will, built on expertise. Mm-hmm. And no one trusts experts anymore, at least in this mm-hmm. political divide that we're talking about. You have conservatives who don't believe in climate change. We just had this you know, hottest September in history uh, around the world. And then you have li- liberals who don't believe in the efficacy of vaccines. And, and the idea that the science is not settled on those topics particularly is still amazes me really you know uh and so how do we get to fact-based discussions um and 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 how do we get to a point where there's less emotion not look we all we're emotional animals right Mm -hmm. we make decisions based on on emotions largely and on the values that come out of that. But, boy, we if we lose facts, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to give you two great examples. And let's um, talk about those. I think so let's, the, the whole climate change, um, the, I think part of the challenge is people have been, um, for the last, what, 20, 30, 40 years, talking about how you know, in just a few years we're going to have huge issues, and they kind of it kind of never come. So I think that provides skepticism right from the other side, like, you warned us about that 30 years ago, but we're still fine. Or you warned us about that. So sometimes I even think it it helps to step back yeah. and say, okay, what is, what is our what is our goal? Like, what is, what is our goal? Our goal is to at least my goal. It may not be your goal. My goal is to be a good. And I talk about this in our Broken America. Right. My goal is to be a good steward of the earth that God has given us. Right. So I can even say, look, even if you don't believe in climate change, then let's talk about how we can actually be good stewards and not right and leave our, our earth better off than where, where it is today, or at least make sure that we're at the same place we are in the future. But how can we good, be good stewards of what we have that we've been given by God? And sometimes that actually, if you reframe the kind of the goal, that will change people's perspective. It's interesting to see. Because on the other side, if you just, if you just talk about you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you just totally shut down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not it's true. And I, and I talk about this a lot. A lot. I um, gave a speech this past weekend, and you know, people are like, so you know, the other side's wrong. The other, and I, wherever the other side is, right? The other side's wrong. The other side's wrong. And I say, well, you know, I, I found that I found that it's not very helpful um, to go scream at someone that they're wrong. 
because yeah. all they do is defend the, their current idea. Right. Right. So. Well, that's right. That's right. And the research shows that the more you attack people with facts, the more they entrench themselves in their their own beliefs. Right. right? They, it doesn't it, it's not convincing yeah. or persuasive. It's like, how do we teach people to listen? Right. right? How do we teach yeah. people to listen? Yeah. Exactly. It's like my grandfather used to say, you know, they, they give us two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> that's great. Well, that, oh, isn't that so true? That is so true. And, and Jackie, I you know, um, I love the thing in your book, which I because I because I believe this is fundamental to the to where we are is this idea we need more gratitude than grievance, which you talk about in your book, mm-hmm. a- and that's what I see. Um, people are predisposed to be angry these days, and it's sort of counter. It's sort of anti-American in some ways, in that well, if you let's think of Reagan's optimism, or FDR's optimism, right. you know, you know that. The, the greater goodness of the country and the, the moral authority that we, we carry. And right today, it seems people are waiting to be aggrieved about something rather than, than <laughs> productive about it. So tell me, what, you're, what do you say about that in the book? I bet that is very well put. Um, I, really, I really appreciate that. We did, so one of the books that I, and I did a lot of research for, Broken America, I uh, have about 24, 25 pages of footnotes. But one of the books I most enjoyed is a book um, by, um, called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. <laughs> <laughs> it talks about how we, right? We all feel that way, right? Oh, oh that yeah. Was that was somebody else. We all think about, we're the uh, smartest person about, in the room. I worked with a lot of people who I wrote think. that book, yeah. <laughs> but it talks about how we justify, you know, foolish beliefs or bad decisions, purple acts. And it's all about making ourselves, right, whoever we are, I am, feel better. Uh, and part of part of what I talk about in our Broken America is that, um, again, this is coming through my, my, you know, my eyes as an Episcopalian, is that we need to really think about how can we not pull others down right. or make ourselves better, but really pull everybody up. Right. Right. Um, and so part of what I focus on is this, this idea of gratitude, not just for things that we are enjoying, but quite frankly, for the fact that we live in a country where we're allowed to have differences of opinion and argue about it. I mean, we should be mm-hmm. grateful that we can argue. If we lived in other countries like Russia and China, we, we couldn't argue quite like this. So while this is, you know, it, it's hard sometimes and gets nasty and personal, at least we live somewhere where we have the right to yeah. speak up and say what we believe. Here, here. I just think we'd be, I think, and I think if we, and I'll give you another example of why I think it, the, the, the mindset matters. People are like, what does it matter that I'm grateful? So I have two children. They're now um, 18 and almost 20, so let's say 18 and 20. And when they were very young, if you can imagine, I spent a lot of time doing the laundry. And quite frankly, I wasn't very excited about it. Hard to imagine. <laughs> I know, right? Hard to imagine I wasn't excited about all that laundry. And then I finally had someone say to me, remember when you're folding their little shirt that you're folding your children's clothes and you're lucky to have these children. Yeah, that's right. And quite, it, it, it has totally so right. changed my approach to laundry. And in fact, I'm doing many loads today. But <laughs> I no longer resentful. <laughs> I'm no longer resentful about, about, you know, helping with the laundry. I'm thankful that I have a family that I can help and that clean clothes, you know, are important to me. And I'm mm-hmm. glad that I can help them in that small way. Sounds like a good political ad to me. Yeah. It, 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 really. It's a great story. It's a great way to talk about, about it. Jackie, she will clean up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and be happy about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. So so in in the final uh, in your final chapter of our broken America, you discuss what we all can do to move beyond the ranting and raving. Um because we're here at Boston University's College of Communication, I was very interested in your notion about changing the national narrative. We talk about narratives a lot in the classroom these days. Uh, why is that important? Moreover, in your mind, how do we go about that? So I, I think it's important because I, I, I believe we're the greatest country um, in the world. That, that's my belief. Uh, again, we have so many freedoms. We're structured differently. You know, we say that we believe our rights come from God, and then we as individuals loan them to the government. We don't have a king or a monarch that has all of the rights that are then loaned out to us. So it's a very different structure, and I think we need to understand that. 
And I think the narrative is important because both people and organizations and I believe countries end up fulfilling what they believe about themselves. So again, let me give you an example. If I tell if I told my child every day that they were the worst person in the world, eventually over time, I'm not sure they'd be the worst person in the world, but they would certainly become yeah. less and less of the good person I know they could be. So I try to focus on the positives. I mean, not that we're perfect, because we're not, but I do think if you focus on the good things they have accomplished, then they will accomplish more of those things. I think the same thing holds true for a nation. I know we're not a perfect nation. That is not my point. Mm-hmm. But I think that if we continually harp on how horrible we are, that we that we will become less interested in being a better country. That's right. I think to be a better country, we have to talk about the good things that we've done, acknowledge the bad things that we've done, but mm-hmm. then focus on what we can do together in the future. I just don't think constantly beating ourselves up is a way to success. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I think, again, it comes back to civil discourse. I mean, we all know that advancements in society, advancements in science come from inquiry. Right. You know, we, we, we know right. the scientific method. We know that, uh, you know, we learn from the great philosophers, you know, because they raise questions. And if people didn't raise questions, mm-hmm. we would still be in a situation where we might think the earth is still flat. We might not have advances <laughs> mm-hmm. in medicine That's right. that we have today or the computer. Right. Um, but it's about how do we do that in a way that is uh, civil, um, empathetic, and yes. understanding uh, of each other in a way that we'll, we'll, both sides will listen. So I think you're exactly right. I, I talk about that a lot. I talk about what I, what I call it is um, you know, intellectual humility. Yeah. Right? So I, may think I, I, yes. I may think I know a lot, and I, but you know what? I don't know everything. Um, and, and quite frankly, I don't think anybody knows everything. That's right, and and we often pretend that we do. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, absolutely. So, um, look, I love dogs too, Jackie. So I'm switching topics here, obviously. <laughs> so I love the analogy in your book about you know this uh, issue of outrage in society uh, with your family's rescue dog. So it's a great story. So could you share that with our our listeners? Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm actually going to post it. I've got a video of Bunny barking. I need to post on social media. <laughs> it really does show you what it, happened. And she's, I mean, so we had this 20-pound, I, I love this dog. We had a 20-pound rescue mutt that my our daughter found online. The fourth was born on her birthday. That um, we ended up adopting. My, my, my sweet husband had to drive twice to South Carolina <laughs> to make sure that this dog was appropriate for us and then bring the dog home. <laughs> And she is. She's great. She's 20 pounds. She's got this. I don't even know what she is. She's part Boykin Spaniel. She's 45 of uh-huh. a dog. She's 20, 20 pounds of dog and another 20 pounds of hair. But she um, is one of those dogs that she's a barker. She loves to bark. Very sweet, but she's a barker. <laughs> so she'll bark at the postman. She'll bark at, wow. you know, my son when he drives up. She'll bark at shadows. Oh, yeah. She loves to bark at shadows. And my favorite thing that she barks at is herself in the mirror. Well, that's a bad one. That's a perpetual motion machine right there. Yeah. Exactly. Like, don't have that dog barking at me. Oh, my God. Um, and so, my, my point is that, yes, some of her barks are, are appropriate, right? That the, the mailman comes up or my you know, son comes up. But some of them are just absolutely ridiculous. And if you're not paying attention, you don't know which one they are. So, you really have to pay attention and, and learn not to bark at everything because if you bark at everything, you're really barking at nothing. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, I have a 10-pound dachshund who, so the opposite mm-hmm. the opposite end of the size spectrum for dogs, who does the same thing. <laughs> same thing. Every movement, <laughs> yeah. you know. And that's right. And that's what we say to her, you know, you, you end up talking to your dog when they're barking. It's like, you're barking at nothing. <laughs> As if he understands. And, and Maybe then, some of us need to do that to some of the politicians. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And and then you probably you probably put you probably put, listen, I mean like you, you don't pay attention to the barking because who knows what it is, right? You don't That's get out right. in front of the door anymore because it's exactly. like, Oh my gosh, they're barking at nothing. That's such yeah. a good story. There you go. There you go. Well, you know, both Gary and I have uh, counseled corporate CEOs, heads of organizations, uh, to build bridges. Uh, to dialogue with multiple stakeholders, including uh, critics. And I think one of the great suggestions in, in this book is, is the thought that um, we all 
you know, can make partners of our enemies. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, you've grown up a Republican. Your father is the former Speaker of the House. Uh, clearly, you've lived in a world of debate and politics. It's been a very big part of your life. My question, not to put your your future electoral hopes into any jeopardy here, but what Democrats do you listen to? And is there a Democrat you like to lunch with? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I do think that's very important because we do need to um, have those personal connections and, and work with others, even if we don't agree with them politically. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, give you examples that I do currently in my own life. So I have several close friends. Uh, one is a guy named David Brand, who is a uh, Democrat here in Atlanta, and he and I have worked on several nonprofits together, um, as well as um, another gentleman, Maxwell de Leon, who is actually out in, in California. His, he's an L.A. County commissioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, he and I are, are personal friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, think, you know, I think that's the way you start. And yep. I don't think you can start with people you don't know. I think you have to meet them yes, right. and make that personal connection. So, if having said that, if I if I do get the appointment to Senate, I will come back and let you know. The next round <laughs> well, you Go know, ahead. you know, Mike. Yeah, right. You, you know, Mike. Yeah, so. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jackie, it's been a delight to have you on the Crux. Uh, we will post a link on our website to where people can get a copy of your book. Yes. Uh, we encourage people who are frustrated with the politics of the day uh, to give it a read. It's Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening. Love love the message. Yeah. Thank you, Jackie. Great. Thank, thank you, you so Jackie. Much. Oh, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank Good you. luck on the campaign trail. <laughs> thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.